Starting today, I'm going to preach a short sermon series from the book of Acts. Why the book of Acts? The book of Acts is a story of a followers of Christ after his death and resurrection and ascension to God. I always try to follow the Easter story with the book of Acts story because the resurrection of Jesus created a chain reaction. One of the most concrete historical evidences about the resurrection of Jesus was the change that his followers experienced after his death. When Jesus was arrested by Jewish authorities, his disciples all fled. That's how all other messianic movements ended at the time. According to historians, there were about 50 Jewish messianic movements in the early centuries. And one thing common among them was when their leaders or founders were killed or died, the movement died. Nobody claimed that our leader was resurrected and ascended to heaven and we have unfinished business to take care. Nobody did that. For instance, there is a, a well-known Jewish uh, a mess, uh, a messianic claimer named uh, Simon Bar Kosheba, Simon, son of star. In the early 2nd century, he led the largest Jewish messianic movement and army known in history, in Jewish history. His movement was so huge and formidable that Roman Emperor Hadrian, he has to call all Roman legions from every corner of the empire, from Britannia, Spain, Gaul, Syria, and Egypt. And it took a while for the Hadrian to really defeat Simon the Bar Kosheba. And when Simon Bar Kosheba was finally killed, his movement died for good. So know the fact the only messianic movement continued even after the death of his founder was Christianity. The followers of Christ did not survive secretly in some secluded areas and came back many years later quietly and spread their faith. If you look at the book of Acts, they spoke openly and immediately less than two months after his death. And they thrived in the entire Roman Empire and beyond its borders. Unlike other messianic movements, Jesus' movement did not end with his death, but actually started from his death through the resurrection. Among those who lived a transformed, changed life because of the resurrection of Jesus was the soul of Tarsus, a.k.a. Paul or Apostle Paul, uh, you know, throughout our uh, message, I'm going to use the both names, Saul and Paul, you know, interchangeably. It's the same person. As you will see it in today's text, Saul first thought that Easter was an error, and the resurrection was an utter lie, and the Christians were unforgettable deviant. So he persecuted the Christians. He was a prosecutor who later became preachers. He was a persecutor who later was a persecuted. Apostle Paul was not only a transformed eyewitness of a risen Christ, 
but also is a faithful gospel writer and a gospel worker. You know, Paul wrote about 13, some people say even 14 of the New Testament books, and out of 27 New Testament books, almost half of them written by him. If you include uh, his disciple Luke, their writings uh, is more than half of the entire New Testament. So his imprint on Christianity is indelible. And uh, a New Testament scholar uh, uh, actually said this, Jesus didn't write a book. Why? Because he had a Paul. He left that to the Paul. And uh, N.T. Wright uh, said about uh, the Paul's writing in this way. He said, uh, Paul's letters in the standard modern translation is fewer than 80 pages. It's not much. It's 80 pages. Even taken as a whole, they are shorter than almost any single one of the Plato's dialogues or Aristotle's treatise. But these letters, page for page, have generated more comments, more sermons, more seminars, more books and dissertations than any writings from the ancient world. He is absolutely right. Every year, do you know, there are several hundreds, probably thousands, articles on Paul and his letters are published in renowned academic journals, and anybody who published the one article on Paul, it is their kind of life honor. So for 2021 post-Easter sermon series on Book of Acts, we'll look at the early days of Apostle Paul, or Saul of Tarsus, from his conversion to the, his first missionary journey. I entitled the overall sermon series in Apostle Paul, Pastor Paul's story. How do you like it? Pastor Paul's story. I borrowed this title from a recent publication uh, of uh, Scott uh, McKnight. Yeah, Scott McKnight is a professor of a North Park uh, Seminary. He is a really thoughtful, innovative evangelical theologian. Uh, I like this kind of master church theologian who constructed theology for the sake of the church with a biblical theology. He's a, Bibli He's a systematic theologian, but he became more biblical theologian, just like I, you know, I am. So his book, Pastor Paul, Nurturing Culture of a Christoformity in the Church. Yeah, that's the book that I've been reading, and uh, so I, I kind of borrowed the title. Uh, now, for me, Apostle Paul is a pastor more than anything else. You know, people think of uh, Paul as a great missionary, a profound theologian and thinker, master apologist, or even polemist. The more I read and study Paul's letter and life, the stronger I believe he is a pastor in his heart. He's a pastor at his core. Why? He knows how much Christ loves the church and how important church is for the gospel and to the world. So, I'm, by the way, I'm truly honored to be named after uh, Apostle Paul. Paul is my Christian name and that my pastor gave me uh, after my baptism. And the most people know me by that name. And anytime I, people call me Pastor Paul, I, you know, I really pray that I live up to this honor. You know, this honorable name. 
So today we will see how Paul met Christ and was changed. For that, let's turn to Acts chapter 9, verse 1 to 9. And then let me read. In meanwhile, Paul was still breathing out murderous threat against the Lord's disciple. He went to the high priest and asked him for the letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether man or woman, belonged to the way means Christians, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared the Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The man traveling with the Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So he, they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Before we reflect on Paul's conversion, I want to share one preliminary thought. There are some biblical scholars who do not want to use the term conversion to Paul's story. Because Paul was never an atheist or unbeliever who later changed his mind about God. They say he was simply a misguided believer who found the full truth in Jesus. I, however, decided to use the term conversion because here we see conversion par excellence. We see conversion in the fullest sense of the word. In our postmodern religious pluralistic world, people avoid words like uh, conversion, thinking that conversion implies some kind of coercion and even violence. Actually, that's the kind of conversion that, that Paul was working on until he met Jesus. True biblical conversion, let me tell you, is done peacefully and also brings out complete new perspective of life. You know, the fact that Paul was very religious before his conversion makes, makes this story more relevant to us. Because many of us that I know in our church were born and uh, raised in the church. So many of us are religious like Paul. The fact that Paul Saul was a pious makes us read this story more self-critically. So I really hope and pray that today everyone takes this story of a conversion and examine your relationship with God and understanding of your, your understanding of the gospel. And here I see the three challenges from the conversion of a Paul, a Saul of Tarsus. The three things that we're going to look at is craziness of Christianity. Number two is a conundrum. And number three is a commission. Okay? So first, let us get to know Saul, for, Saul first. Saul said later in the Acts chapter 21, 39, I am a Jew of a Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of a no insignificant city. You know, at the time, 
Jewish population was estimated uh, around 3 to 8 million. And two-thirds of the Jews were living outside of Palestine, and they were called the Hellenistic Jew. And Paul was one of them. And Paul said he grew up in a city called Tarsus, and he said it was not a no, insignificant, ordinary city. He has a pride in his city because Tarsus was a very, very, Tarsus was a, uh, uh, known for, uh, uh, is a significant city known for four, in four ways. First, demographically, it has more than half million population. So Seoul grew up in the large cosmopolitan in a city. Economically, it was a trade center by virtue of a, a strategic location and natural surrounding, including, do we have a map, by the way? Yes, thank you. So do you see the uh, river Adena? And uh, it's, so south of it is the uh, Mediterranean Sea. So it has a trading uh, seaport and easy to transport. And also in the north of it, there is a mountain region and it has a metals and a supply of metals and also a very fertile soils. So economically, it was a trade center and by virtue of a location. And it, and it also known for textile business, especially tent making. And the tent making in post time, it's not like a, a REI kind of leisure outdoor business. No, tent making was a permanent dwelling place for many nomads and shepherds. So it was more like affordable housing industry. And thirdly, I mean, politically, it was an independent city. It was actually called the Civita Libertas free city by Romans. You know, Romans, just like the Syrians and the many previous kingdoms in the region recognized the importance of Tarsus and then granted them the rare privilege of self-governing. So that's why Paul said, I'm a citizen of a no insignificant you know, a city. And intellectually, and finally, Tarsus, would you believe it, rivaled Athens since many philosophers fled to fled from Athens to Tarsus about a hundred years ago, when Athens was invaded by Romans and the many philosophers or Athens actually Athens they actually buried in the wrong horse. So some smart you know philosophers said, "Oh, you guys you know you you'll be wiped out." And they left and they moved to Tarsus. So Tarsus became a town of intellectual power, sort of a university town. So Paul grew up in this kind of very rich, you know, a, a, a Greek city with a large population of a Jewish people. And I want to say this, Paul was more than actually a Hellenistic Jew. According to Acts chapter 22, Paul said also about this himself. I am a Jew, born in Acts chapter 22, verse 3. I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but... I brought up, I was brought up in this city, that means Jerusalem. I studied under Gamaliel and was orally trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of it this way 
to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into the prison. Paul came to Jerusalem in his early 20s to pursue Pharisaic tradition and rabbinic training further. So unlike many Hellenistic Jews who stay in their hometowns and they make a living and then just live as a Jew, Paul was different. Paul was a Hellenistic Jew, but came back to native country, his ancestors' country, and then he was serious about becoming a true Jew or faithful Jew or even rabbi. And so he was a committed and confident Pharisee, well-versed in the Hebrew language and scripture and the Mosaic tradition. Paul was a multilingual, by the way. In the book of Acts, you will see he's speaking Aramaic, he's speaking Greek, he probably knows the Latin too. You name it, he is an intellectual, uh, uh, you know, he's a very intellectual guy. And the key word about his own self-description he said, I was a zealous for God, just like any one of you. And this word, zeal for God, or zealous for God, is a very important word. Because first time this word appeared was uh, Numbers 25, which recorded a very infamous incident in Israel's journey in the wilderness. When Moabite, though one of the Canaanite tribes, seduced the Israelite, into their religious ritual of orgies. You know, that's a pagan worship. Baal, Astra, all this, you know, God and goddess making love, and that's how the rain comes to the earth, and that's how we farm and we live. So in order to help God, we need to make, a, you know, whatever, sexual, uh, uh, what is that, the uh, rituals. And that's uh, their pretext of uh, their sexual orgies. And uh, they invited the Israelites to participate, and many of them did. And when Moses saw that, and his, Moses and his leaders, they were lamenting and weeping and say that they were crying. And, and then in front of Moses, there's a one Israelite who took the Midianite woman, bluntly, knowingly, took his tent and doing the same thing. And when Moses was a speechless, Son of one son of Aaron, name of Phineas, he took those spear and went and killed both of them. And later, the God told Moses, Phineas, son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from Israelite, since he has a zeal for my honor among them as I am. I did not put an end to them in my zeal. Therefore, tell them I'm making my covenant of a peace with you. So zeal for God was an almost allegiance to God and his command. This religious devotion even involves a violence against the fellow Jews. That's what Paul was saying that I'm a zealous. So when Jewish people zealous that uh, he put God above everything, including his own people, He's willing to kill another Jew for the honor of God. And that's what Paul was doing, Acts 9, verse 1 and 2, that today's text, Paul said, Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out. By the way, the word breathing out, only time appeared in the New Testament, picturing that Paul is like a very, very, you know, a, a, a dangerous, you know, beast. 
and murderous threat against the Lord's disciple. So he went to the priests and asked for the permission to arrest anybody, even in Damascus. Now, look at me. Earlier in Acts 7, Paul already instigated a Jewish mob to kill Stephen, the first martyr, and they initiated the sweeping persecution against the Christian Jews or fellow followers of the, uh, the way, Jesus, in Jerusalem and Judea, and they, they all left except the apostles. Today, Paul was going to Damascus with the same zeal. Damascus was about 200 miles away from Jerusalem. That implies that Saul was not content with uh, uh, banishing the follow, followers of Jesus from Palestine, but much more, he was uh, committed to eradicate them from the face of the earth. In this sense, Paul went even farther than his teacher, Gamaliel. You know, in Acts chapter 5, Gamaliel advises Sanhedrin to leave Christians alone. He said the, uh, this kind of you know, fanatic, uh, 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 fanatic movement, they're going to eventually die down. They're going to lose their steam. If they continue to grow, then you have to realize they might be come from God. And Gamaliel was right. Jesus' movement was from God. But Saul, he can't stand it. He saw Christians or Christian Jews, the first you know, followers of Christ, Jesus, dangerous like a pandemic. And he wants to eradicate them. Now, this is the first point. What made a Paul, Saul, or Paul or Saul at this moment, Saul of Tarsus hate the Christians so much? Why was Saul loathing his fellow Jews who believed Jesus as their Messiah? Here we see Paul's conviction against the Christians because Paul thought they have crazy claims, crazy dangerous claims. In order to understand why Paul persecuted Christians to his last you know, uh, uh, teeth, we need to understand what Judaism was back then. Judaism was not what some people call the works-based religion at all. Actually, Jews observed special Jewish traditions like a circumcision, dietary laws, Sabbath keeping, and reverence for the Temple of Jerusalem as a boundary makers, boundary makers that distinguished them from Gentiles and so that they could maintain their covenantal relationship with God. So in that sense, Paul was saying that Paul argued against the salvation by works. Paul was actually focusing on those special observances rather than good works of obedience to the law of God. Now, here it is the crazy claims of a Christian Jews that Paul couldn't stand. So pay attention here. Christian Jews were preaching, and Paul heard, Saul heard, that God does not reside in the Jerusalem temple or any temple made by human hands. But God was in the midst of those who worship him in the name of Jesus. So they saying the Christian Jews saying the temple is irrelevant and the Christian gathering in the name of Jesus is far more important than temple of Jerusalem. Okay? 
and Christian Jews began to worship also at another extra day, the Lord's Day, the eighth day. Instead, beside the seventh day, the, the Sabbath day, Christian Jews, they began to worship the, seventh, the eighth day, Sunday, as the ultimate day of worship because this is the day that God raised Messiah or Jesus from the dead. And then you have to know that Jewish people, all Jews back then believe in resurrection. But at the end of history, not in the middle of history. And these people saying that resurrection already happened, starting with Jesus. And the worse, the followers of uh, uh, Jesus, they also instituted some new ritual called baptism. And somehow they pay more attention to baptism than circumcision. In baptism, they baptize both men and woman, anybody, in the name of Jesus and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then, worse, the Christian Jews were sharing their faith with everyone, including Gentiles, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles, the pagans. In one word, to Paul, to Saul, Christian Jews were blurring, even breaking all the boundary makers of a Jewish people. Circumcision, Sabbath, temple, kosher diet are all compromised. The worst is that they call Jesus not just a Messiah, but the Son of God. It was a crazy thing to say to pious Jew like a Saul who said the Jewish in you know, a prayer three times a day. You know, back then, Jewish people, they prayed the three times a day that the Deuteronomy 6.4, Shema Israel Adonai Elihanu El Adonai Echad. That means, hear Israel, our, uh, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. This is a monotheistic you know, prayer. That was, the, uh, that was the only dogma the Jewish people believe. By calling Jesus Son of God, these Christian Jews were denying and deserting or that the, 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 the oldest Jewish dogma, the Shema Israel. They are worse than pagan Hellenists who believed in all kinds of God. They made a Yahweh, the father of a crucified blasphemer and the failed Messiah. That's why Saul of Tarsus was ticked and felt the conviction to eradicate Christians. You know, biblical scholars all concur one thing, that is a Christian claims about Jesus was a nothing but total lunacy to Jews. Jews would be the last, Jewish people would be the last people on earth to believe Almighty God Yahweh became a real human being and lived a full natural human life from, with a flesh from birth to death. You know, Greeks, while Greeks believed in incarnations of God, Jews never imagined such an idea. To them, any notion of incarnation, let alone the crucifixion of God, is nothing but the most crazy idea. And that's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 23, he said, when we preached the crucified Christ, it was a stumbling block, stumbling block to the Jew. 
The Greek word stumbling block is a scandalon, from which we have English word scandal. And I subtitles today's sermon, sub subtitle today's sermon, Scandal of a Grace, which is also you know, a title of our dedication song today. Scandal of a Grace tells us not only crazy claims of Christ, but the conviction to Saul of Tossers to, to really eradicate. Do you recognize the, how crazy our faith is? How crazy Christian claim is? All right, let me go to the second point. The scandal of grace also gives us the conundrum, conundrum, or enigma of a grace. And let's find out what do I mean by that. Uh, verse 3, when Paul neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground, and the voice said to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And who are you, Lord? Saul asked, and I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. You know, some people think that uh, Paul's conversion, Saul's conversion was uh, spontaneous. When he met risen Christ on his, way to, on his way to Damascus. And I want to tell you this. It was not spontaneous, but rather simmering, simmering steadily. Saul was a clueless Saul was not clueless when he met uh, when Jesus met him. He was confused. He was already confused and struggling with a clue and conundrum at the time. So, what's the conundrum that Paul struggled? For that, we need to hear Saul's uh, own testimony about his conversion in Acts chapter twenty-six. By the way, uh, Saul's conversion story was told three separate times in the book of Acts. Chapter 9, chapter 22, chapter 26. So, chapter 26, verse 14. This is what Saul said. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Also, why do you persecute me? And then this is uh, the next sentence is uh, Paul's, own, you know, uh, Paul's own testimony. They looked at the record earlier. It is hard for you to kick against the gold. What is a gold? Gold is a basically long stick with a sharp pointer at the end to prick the sheep and animals to guide them. And Jesus was telling Saul basically this. Saul, aren't you tired of kicking against your own conscience? Why don't you stop resisting the grace of God that you encountered? Okay. What is the uh, grace of God that is Pricking Saul. This conundrum of grace that Saul struggled was nothing other than gracious forgiveness of Stephen, the first martyr. Look at the Acts chapter 7, and it said this At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices. Uh, Stephen just Stephen said right before Stephen said, I see, you know, Son of God or Christ at the standing right, right side of God, and that's what they were shouting. All they rushed at him and dragged him out of the city, began to stone him. 
Meanwhile, the witnesses lay their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. So Saul was the instigator or ringleader. And young man, according to Mishnah, Jewish tradition, means somebody in the, uh, around the age of 30 to 35. So, yeah, we have uh, many young men in our church. And uh, while they were stoning him, guess what Stephen said? Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out. The last prayer of Stephen was, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, Stephen's martyrdom was very different from the martyrdom that Saul grew up with hearing about. Like many pious Jews in the intertestamental time, Saul was growing up hearing the story of a courageous Jewish martyrs and fighters like Judas Maccabee and many other Jews about 200 years before. For instance, there is a sort of a second canonical book, sort of a semi-official book of a, you know, called the Second Maccabee. 2nd Maccabee told us the famous martyrdom of seven Jewish brothers who endured the torture of Antiochus Epiphanes, the Syrian king, the Greek king, who tempted them to eat the pork and promised them that if you quit Judaism and by eating the pork and join me, I'm going to make you very prosperous and give you all the perks of the kings. And they kept their faith and died with these final testimonies. And they hear some of the things they said. So some of the brothers, they say this. The last word, they, these Jewish martyrs were this. You butcher, you may kill us, but the king of the universe will raise us from the dead and give us eternal life. Do you see Jewish people believe in resurrection? Because we obey the law. And another you know, brother said, I'm glad to die at your hand because we have assurance that God will raise us from the dead. But there will be no resurrection to life for you, Antiochus. You know, so he said, Haha, I'm dying, but I'm actually living. You're living, but you're soon going to be dead for a long time. You know, and then all another brother said, You are the cruelest and most disgusting thing that ever lived. So don't fool yourself with the illusions of greatness while you punish God's people. There's no way for you to escape the punishment at the hands of Almighty and all-seeing God. My brothers suffered briefly because of their faithfulness God's covenant, but now they have entered eternal life. But you will fall under God's judgment and be punished as you deserve for your arrogance. So how did all the Jewish martyrs, the inspiring Jewish martyrs, die? They were dying, saying that we will be resurrected, but you guys who punished us, you in big trouble. God will punish you. We don't see that in Stephen. Unlike the typical Jewish martyrs, Saul saw Stephen dying, not just with the faith, but with a forgiveness for his killers or his enemies. He prayed for forgiveness for Saul and those who are stoning him. 
And that was a conundrum that confused, confounded Saul the Pharisee. And Saul immediately realized and heard that Jesus prayed the same prayer on the cross. And also, I bet, Stephen was the last person who died graciously like that. Saul saw this, Saul saw many Christians, many Jewish people following the way, the Jesus, dying in the same way. So Saul now saw, the, the, that's what the Saul was struggling in his conscience. And that's what Jesus is pointing out. It's hard for you to kick against the gold. That there is a pain in your conscience. There is a conundrum in your, in your heart, in your mind. And finally, Saul saw the source of his conundrum. The risen and living Christ. He realized that Jesus actually is alive and lives in his followers. He lives with them. He reigns as the risen Lord. Saul realized the resurrection of Christ is a real historical event that empowered his followers to live and die like him. And here is second challenge and characteristic of a soul's conversion and the biblical conversion for us. Grace of God that we encountered in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ make us gracious. Let me repeat that. Grace of God in Jesus Christ make us gracious. Are you gracious and forgiving like us Jesus, Stephen, and all other or witnesses and martyrs of the early church? Let me read you a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a great German martyr, in his book, Cost of Discipleship. Jesus stands between us and God, and for that very reason, he stands between us and all other men and things. He is a mediator, not only between God and man, but between man and man, between man and reality, since the whole world was created through him and unto him. He is a sole mediator in the world. The call of Jesus teaches us that our relation to the world has been built on an illusion. All the time we thought we had enjoyed a direct relationship with the man and things. This is what had hindered us from faith and obedience. Now we learn that in the most intimate relationship of life, in our kinship with the father and mother, brother and sisters, in married love, in our duty to the community, Direct relationships are impossible. Since the coming of Christ, his followers have no more immediate realities of their own. Not in their family relationship, nor in the ties with their nation, nor in the relationship formed in the process of living between father and son and husband and wife, individual and nation, stand the Christ the mediator, whether they are able to recognize him or not. And this is a key. We cannot establish direct contact outside of ourselves except through Him, Jesus Christ, through His Word, through our following of Him. To think otherwise is to deceive ourselves. Now, early Christians were enigma and a conundrum of the grace of Christ. They perceived the reality 
and they constructed all relationship through the mediator Jesus Christ, who is living in their heart and reigning in their life as a risen Christ, risen Lord. We don't live our life directly. Bonhoeffer said that's a deception. We live life thoughtfully, deliberately, through the reality of a resurrection or risen Christ. So I have a question for all of us. Are we the conundrum of God's grace? Through our forgiveness and sacrifice? Or are we actually contradiction of God's grace? So even though we claim to know God's forgiveness, but we don't forgive others. Are we self-preserving just like everyone else in the world? Or are we self-sacrificing for sake of Christ and his gospel? Let me move quickly to the third and the final point. If some of us wonder, how come Jesus did not show himself to me like, uh, like a Saul, you know, like to Saul on his road to Damascus? You know, I want to assure you that the most important thing uh, about Saul's conversion is not only he realized the resurrection is real, but actually he received a commission for the gospel. And this uh, last challenge of a soul's conversion is a, a commission. So let me read a verse. And then for that, we all received the same commission from Jesus. Let me read Acts chapter 9, verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, the Lord, he answered. The Lord told him to go to the house of Judas, uh, uh, Judas on the street street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying. Jesus talking is not talking about ritual Jewish, Jesus, uh, uh, Jewish prayer. He's praying whole time. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. So Jesus assured Ananias that he knows that you are coming. And Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to his holy, your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and the people to the people of Israel. I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name. By the way, Ananias never told Saul how much he has to suffer for. That, that last part, he didn't tell Saul. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you are coming here has sent me so that you may see again, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like a scales fell from Saul's eye. He couldn't see again. He got up and baptized. He was baptized. After taking some food, regained strength, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. When Christ told Saul that, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul learned 
that Christ identified himself with his followers. Because Christ didn't say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute my followers? Why do you persecute my disciples? Jesus said, why do you persecute me? Jesus said directly, there is also the organic bond between Christ and his followers or church. Christ feels what his followers go through. This is why Paul, among all the New Testament writers, is the only one who said, church is a body of Christ. There is an organic bond. And for Paul, Christology and ecclesiology are inseparable from the beginning. His understanding of Christ, his understanding of a church came together. To believe Jesus means to believe, to believe Jesus in me, to, be, you know, to believe in Jesus, my Savior, means Jesus in others. So here is very important challenge and confirmation uh, that in our spiritual journey and growth, we always grow and travel with the body of Christ. And uh, house church, the safe, intimate, transparent fellowship is not an optional extra church program, but essential operational spiritual life. Let me repeat that. For us, house church ministry, the transparent, intimate, safe, confidential fellowship of us uh, uh, believers in a small, small group, it's not optional. It's operational. It's our modus operandi. You know, interesting and important fact uh, about Jesus' commission to Saul is that Jesus didn't tell him everything. But Jesus expected the Ananias and the church of Damascus to pray and baptize for Saul, baptize Saul. In other words, Jesus didn't make Saul's, uh, Saul's Christian life a solitary experience, but a social experience. Here we must remember, commission and community go together. Faith and family of God go together. This is why the early Christians, they said, those who fail to, fail to call, those who don't call, church as a mother of God, cannot call God the Father. Church is a mother of our God, you know, it's our mother, our spiritual mother, because God gave us a church as is a body to care for us. You know, when Ananias called the uh, unbaptized, pre-baptized Saul, brother Saul, here is an important thing. Saul was embraced not only by Christ, but by the whole church. Obedience of Ananias is uh, deserved another sermon in by itself. But let us remember this. It was Ananias and the Damascus church that restores Paul's vision and health for God's ministry. And it is my prayer that for us we become same, bold, faithful, obedient community of God to reach out to our VIPs and restore their life vision with the love of Christ. 
So let me close today's message with one last quote from the scripture, which is 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul said, examine your life to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. So today, I call everyone, examine your conversion. Your conversion experience, your faith confession before Christ. Do you recognize that, it, that there is a crazy claims on the crucified risen Christ? Do you recognize if your life is a conundrum of a grace? Test if your Christian life is a more than individual insurance policy for whatever heaven, but as actually commissioned life for the gospel here and now. Let's pray.